If you have a Bible or an iPad or an iPhone or some way to uh, uh, access the scriptures, go ahead and find your way to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 is where we're going to start off this morning. Um, and as, you're, as we're finishing passing the baskets across, I want to kind of give you a, a little bit of background on, on what we're walking through today. So if you were here the last couple of weeks, we uh, put out some information, announcement uh, about the fact that today uh, we're actually going to be talking about a name change for our church family. So if you're visiting, this is your first time, you pick the right Sunday, uh, at least to find out a bit about what, where we're at as a church and what God's doing through us. Uh, but before we, we get into the specifics of what that looks like, I want to kind of give you just a little bit of background uh, before I tell you the name, and then you're going to get some information that will give you kind of the, the, the understanding and the overview of, of the name change and why we're changing the name. Um, but, but so you know, I, I've been the pastor here at New Hope for a little over two years now. And the, the first six months or so that, that when I was here, um, probably the, the most asked question of me was, are we going to change the name? I don't know how many people, in fact, some of you probably in this room right now think, yeah, that was me, about five times, ten times. And it's, we've had, we've had a, a history of ups and downs and challenges and, and great victories and all those things. But coming into the season a couple of years ago, people were like, well, we really need to make a name change. and Are you going to change the name? And at that time, if, if you were one of those people that had that conversation, maybe you recall, my response was, not at this point. I don't plan to change the name because the reason why is that, not, that God hadn't said, okay, you're supposed to change the name, and so here's the name, so move forward. But really what, what would spark those kinds of conversations wasn't necessarily a conviction for the future identity that God's giving us. It was a reaction against the past that maybe we didn't like. And so the conversation really was about we can never try to identify ourselves by what we don't want to be. And any kind of knee-jerk reaction to a name change is like, ah, anything but that, because it's tied to failure or the past or somebody I don't like. Please change the name. Guess what happens when you do that? Your issues follow you into whatever new identity you're trying to establish. So I really, I pushed that to the back burner. I wasn't planning on changing the name of the church. But as, as, as time unfolded, I said, Lord, I'm open to whatever you want to do. And it wasn't until about four to six months ago that, that I felt like the Lord was saying, yeah, you know, it, as, as I'm recreating you, and obviously there's a new opportunity as we're making the transition, which I was like, wasn't thinking about with a building transition, but Lord, if you want to give us a new identity, a new name, then do it. And it wasn't as though I went up to the mountain and said, okay, God, give me the name. And then he etched it in big stones, and I came down the mountain. No, Moses did that. God didn't do that with me. In fact, it was much more, it was a simple process. Actually, I wasn't even looking. I didn't go down and sit on, in my, on my computer and say, okay, what are the top 10 coolest names of churches in America? Let's pick one of those. I didn't do that. And it was more of that, okay, God, my, my heart and my mind is open. If you want to change your name, then give us a name. And so as I was actually, it was probably, I don't know, I think it was Christmas time. I was actually up visiting my parents and driving, and, and the name of the church was on someone's license plate, and it wasn't a church name. It was actually a location. And I didn't even, I read it, and I'm like, okay, start thinking about it. And, and, and then I thought, oh, whatever. And I wasn't even thinking about name of church. And then probably a half hour later, my, my brain started to engage, and God started to say, that's who you're supposed to be called. And that name that we're, we're going to embrace as a church is Antioch Church. Now, I know none of, no one's doing cartwheels and going, yes, that's the one. I was longing for Antioch Church, and I know why, because some of you, if you don't have biblical history, you're kind of going, okay, what does that mean? I know there's an Antioch, California, which is, by the way, that's what I saw in the license plate frame, and, and so you're thinking, what does that even mean? Well, ushers, go ahead, and why don't you come forward? The ushers are handing out to you some information 
that we're going to walk through together this morning. And I need you to, to focus. I need you to listen. I need you to stay with me for the next 45 minutes because once we get to the end of 45 minutes, you're going to understand why we're embracing the name Antioch Church. So the information that you're getting right now is pretty much the general summary of all we're going to cover this morning. And I wanted to give you that so that you didn't feel like, oh, I needed to take notes and get every little detail down. Because I've seen some of you, I'm like, I'm not that detailed, but some of you cover every square inch of your bulletin by the time Sunday's done. Like every, it's like, is it everything I said, even when I sneezed, you wrote that down? That's okay. But but what you have in there is is all the information. And, And included in that, there's a ballot. And the reason there's a ballot in that is part of our four-square protocol, part of the denomination, that the church family that we're a part of, is requires that when we have a name change, that there's a, number, there's a process. The first step is that our district supervisor, who is Dennis Easter, who oversees all the area, our area of four-square churches, and his what's called a district council, have to approve the name. They've approved the name. Then it goes to our church council and our leadership, and they process through the name. And then they approve it. Our leadership has done that. Our church council has approved it, and now the leadership's approved it. The final step in the process is a congregational approval. And that is that you're saying yes or you're saying no. And we will come to that vote at the end of the service. And so that's why you have a ballot there, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So, But as we walk through this, I, I want you to, to really stay focused as we walk through this, because it's going to be really important about how we understand what Antioch Church means. It has really to do with a self-identification of who God is calling us to be. So, if you have your Bibles, let's jump into to Acts chapter 11, and I'm going to read from verse 19 to verse 30, which describes for you and I what the first church in Antioch was all about, what they looked like in terms of how they lived their life, the things that they did, kind of the DNA of who they are, and it will help us to understand more about who God's calling us to be. So, starting in verse 19, it says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, later we know as Paul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first, or were called Christians first, at Antioch. During this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now I want to stop there, and there's a couple other passages that I'll reference that have to do with Antioch. But I wanted you just to capture, and I know that's, that's a lot of scripture kind of processing through, but, but what you and I have just read, what I just read, you just heard, describes a church in the New Testament that ultimately was probably one of the most impactful, influential churches that very little negative was ever written about, but mostly was positive because of the distinctives of what that church was comprised of. And that's what I want to just quickly, in fact, this is in your notes there. There's six things that kind of stand out when we read through that of what was true of that church that I believe God is calling to be true of our church. 
The first one you can see in verse 19 is that the Antioch church was a church birth through scattering from persecution. So if you remember, kind of going back, if you know the book of Acts, you go back to Acts chapter 7. There's a guy named Stephen, which is referenced there in verse 19. And he's telling people about Jesus. He's telling the religious leaders, the Jews, about Jesus. They don't like what he says, so they actually kill him. And that kind of causes everybody to react like, wow, being a follower of Jesus means I have to put my life on the line. So some of those followers of Jesus start to scatter. And what's crazy is when they scatter, guess what they're carrying with them? They're carrying the gospel with them. They're carrying the truth about who Jesus is. And so as they're coming into contact with different people, they're telling them. And the result is this place in Antioch, this city, gets the church planted there because there's these people fleeing from Jerusalem because of the persecution. So the church is birthed out of struggle and pain and persecution. Which when I, when I read through this, if you've been around at this church for a long time, we've seen great heights and great depths, haven't we? We've seen challenges, we've seen difficulties, we've seen sometimes be be perceived as persecution, all that. And I believe that God is birthing something out of our history for our future. Second thing that's distinct about the church in Antioch is it's a church where the gospel was initially shared with the Gentiles. So you and I have to understand this thing called Christianity doesn't exist if it weren't for Israel. Doesn't exist if it weren't for the Jewish people. We came out of Israel Jesus was a Jew. All of his original followers were Jews. And because of that, initially when Jesus sets this thing up and he dies and he rises from the dead and the the first church gets planted, initially it's a Jewish thing. It's comprised of Jews. But then if you get to Acts chapter 10 and then we get to 11, but Acts chapter 10, Jesus comes to Peter and says, hey, Peter, eat this stuff that you're not supposed to eat. Eat this stuff that as a Jew, you're not supposed to. And Peter says, I can't do that. And he says, yes, you can. He said, what you, I've made clean is clean. And he was not just talking about food. He was talking about that you call Gentiles unclean, but I've called them clean because I want you to reach them. And then you get to Antioch. And in this church, it's amazing. This is the first time non-Jews are actually intentionally reached. People outside the Jewish culture are reached, which is really significant. It's why you and I are here today. If this doesn't happen in Antioch 2,000 years ago, we don't have new hope today. It's because a group of people were going outside of the Jewish culture to the non-religious people around them. And then the third distinctive of the church at Antioch is a church where Barnabas witnessed the grace of God. He showed up and he sees something so dramatic happening among the people that the only conclusion he can come to is God's grace is here. God is present here. God is working here. I can can see it happening. To think about what would it be like to that kind of church? Not that, okay, someone comes into our gathering and think, man, I really got the goosebumps because worship was really powerful today, although that can be a sign of God's working in your life. But they encounter people that are, are part of this thing called Antioch Church, and because of that, they realize, wow, there's something in their life. There's something about them that, that's different, that God's doing something. I can definitely say that I don't even know if I know God, but it's got to be bigger than them. That's what Barnabas was seeing. He's seeing the presence of God in the lives of people. Then the fourth distinctive, it's a church where the disciples were first called Christians. The name that we identify ourselves with 2,000 years ago, the word Christian, that's what describes us, was first initiated 2,000 years ago in Antioch. Now, whether it was derogatory, which it could have been, or it was positive, it was a clear identifier that this group of people were choosing to be like a guy named Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christians. In other words, like little Christians. They're like, hey, they're trying to be like that guy, Jesus. So somehow they so lived their life in a way that it reflected a name that they didn't give themselves. Christians was something, the word Christian was never, we never gave to ourselves. It was what the world gave to us. 
And then the fifth thing that was true of this church was that it's a church of generosity. So they, they hear here that there's going to be a famine and they know that there's going to be other people who are followers of Jesus that are going to be struggling because there's not enough food. So not only, they, I'm sure they prayed, like every good church does, but they took it upon themselves to say, how can we help lessen the burden and the struggle of our brothers and sisters in Judea? So they, each person decided to say, I'm going to give this much money. I'm going to support them to help them have what they don't have because of the famine. So they found their way to be generous. And then the, the final distinctive of this church, and then we'll talk about more specific for us, is that it was a church uh, who sent missionaries around the world. So if you continue to read on into chapter 13 and then 15 and 18, you see this amazing thing happens. So it's this church that's birthed out of persecution as people scatter and it started. But then in its DNA, in, in its, the essence of who it is, it starts sending people out. And Paul, who is the ultimate missionary that we know, who's the one that kept going out and presenting the gospel to people. It's recorded throughout the book of Acts. Every missionary journey that he took, all three major missionary journeys, guess where they started? Antioch. So he would go out, and then eventually he would find his way back into Antioch. They would pray for him. He would go out, and then he'd find it and go out. And so they were this sending church that they just, they valued the world around them so they would send people out so that people could hear the truth about who Jesus is and their lives could be changed. So when you see those things, now that, that kind of gives us kind of a picture of what this church looked like, what it was known for. And if, if the name Antioch Church is the name that God is giving to us, then that means there's something about what God is doing in us that we are in the process of becoming, but what he's already been doing in us even before I got here. Because Jesus is slightly bigger than Pastor John, and he's always been here. How many know that's true? He's always been faithful throughout the years, and he's doing his work in people, even though things may not be as perfect as they're supposed to be or we think they're supposed to be. God is still at work. So what does that mean for us specifically as a church? There's four things I want to touch on that really have to do with a DNA that God is giving to us as a church family. You know, we all have physical DNA. That's the building blocks of who we are. It's, the, it's what distinctly sets us apart from any other person. And in, in our church, God gives us the DNA of this is, the, this is your unique calling. This is your unique purpose of what I've called you to be. And he gives it to us as we reflect on what it means to be a church called Antioch. So four things. The first one is this, that Antioch church DNA is missional. Now, you've probably heard the word. We've said that word a number of times the last couple of years. And it really has to do with mission, that at the heart of who we are called to be is to be missionaries. Now, I know right now when I say that, many of us in the room have defaulted to, yeah, missionaries. That's those people we send away. That's those people we pray for. That's those people I even give to sometimes. But that's not me. Missionaries are those crazy people who like to eat different kinds of food, speak different kinds of languages, and go to different cultures. I'm fine being here in Simi Valley, Moore Park, or wherever I live. I'm not a missionary. You are a missionary. The reason you are is because the God that you serve is a missionary God. And from the beginning of time, God was unfolding his plan of reaching out to humanity. Just so you know, missionaries didn't start in the New Testament. Missionaries started a long time ago. God's mission started with Abraham. God's mission, you could say, even started with Adam and Eve. When they blew it, when they sinned, and they got banished from the garden, they were separated from God. God loved humanity so much that he put in motion this plan to find a way to reconcile people who had walked away from God back to him so that he could be in relationship again. That started thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. That's the nature of who God is. Therefore, if we choose to follow Jesus, 
If we call ourselves Christians, then by, by connection to him, we are missionaries. And that means you don't have to go anywhere to be a missionary because you're a, mission, a missionary who has been sent to your neighborhood, your job, your school, your, fa- your family. That's, that's the place, the relationships you already have, God has given you a mission field. And he said, you're a missionary. Because he is ascending God. Whether you believe it or not, he chose where you live right now. You thought, no, I liked my house or I liked my apartment. I chose that or that's what I could afford. God orchestrated that to place you where you're at because he loves people that live around you. And he sent you to be a missionary. Now, there's a couple of key things that you and I need to understand and some phrases that we've used about being a missionary that really helps us to bring clarity on on why we are becoming what we're becoming. Um, one of the phrases that you might hear said is this, it's really a question. Does God's church have a mission or does God's mission have a church? Now you're thinking, now you just confused me, okay? I haven't been awake long enough to know what you just said. But just think about that for a moment. We primarily function under this mindset. God's church has a mission. In other words, mission came first or church came first, then the mission came. No. Where did mission start? It started thousands of years ago. That means that God's mission, which came first, has the church, which is the vehicle for God's mission. Which means you and I don't come up with a plan and have our mission and say, hey, God, come join our party. Come join us what we're doing. God, let's, we'll just pray that you bless what we want to do. No, that's, that's backwards. God already has a mission. God is already working in the world. He's saying, hey, you who church, you know, bride of Christ, the one that belongs to me, uh, I have a mission already. Don't figure out what it is. It's already been embedded in, in the Bible, and it's been around for thousands of years. You just need to be reminded of it, it, what it is. So if we shift our mind to understand that this thing called church is just the vehicle for God's mission, not the other way around, then you realize that all our main focus of what we're supposed to be about is mission. Because there's another statement that you and I have to really come to grips with. And that is that the primary activity of God is not in the church, it's in the world. Now we we think it's the other way around. All the action happens in the church. When we gather and, and when this happens, that's where all the activity is. That's not true. Read through the Gospels and see where Jesus did all, where all the action happened with Jesus. It didn't happen in a church gathering. It didn't happen necessarily in a synagogue. It happened in the streets. It happened through a relationship. It happened having a party with a bunch of sinners and hanging out with them. That's where it happened. And the same thing is true for you and I. If we're going to be about what God's doing in our lives, then it isn't going to be about how many more gatherings can we have? How many more programs can we schedule in the building so that we look at the building? Man, the building's going 24-7. That means we're a really good church. No, the primary activity of God is in your neighborhood. It's in your church. I mean, your school. It's in your, it's in your work. It's in, it's in your relationships. That's where the primary activity of God is. That means when we walk outside this building, God is at work around us. We just haven't discovered what he's doing yet because we've compartmentalized, oh, okay, when I go to church, that's when God's really going to do something. I'm going to show up to church, and guess what? God doesn't live at Shasta. God doesn't live at Runway, does he? Where does he live? Inside of us. The temple in the Old Testament was the presence of God. The temple in the New Testament is the followers of Jesus. He lives inside of us everywhere we go. That means the primary activity of God is reaching out to people around us who don't know him yet. That means that really this is the place where you come and you get equipped and you get recharged and then you go live out God's mission every single day of your life. That's what God's calling us to be, a church that is is missional. Second thing that's true of our DNA that God is calling us to become is to be a church that's generous. 
Now, what's beautiful about our history is that over time, Sunrise New Hope has been an extremely generous church. There's a church in our city that their buildings paid off because of what Sunrise did years and years ago to pay off their, their, their mortgage or pay off their loan. That's been part of who we are. And that's part of the church in Antioch was, hey, there's believers over in Judea that are struggling. We need to help them. So they gave sacrificially of themselves. That's been true of our church. Over the last year, just to give you a, a snapshot, we've given over, over $13,000 to the Samaritan Center in our city because we believe that God is at work through what the Samaritan Center is doing and caring for people. At that same time, over that period of time, we've given about $3,200 to the CPC, to the Community Pregnancy Center, to help support what God is doing there with helping uh, young girls who are pregnant and don't have answers of what to do. We've also, at the same time, over that period of time, we've given over $35,000 away in support of teams and missions that God has been sending through us and we've been supporting and partnering with. As well, we've, we've given recently, we gave $5,000 to the Samuel Buxton Memorial Fund which helps to scholarship someone to go and be a part of Wheels for the World with Johnny and Friends to help fit people with wheelchairs and work with people with disabilities. And then just recently, within the last couple months, we actually, these are things the council has approved when they look at the need and say, okay, we should do this. We gave $5,000 to a church that's just a couple years old out in the Antelope Valley called Life Church because they're in the middle of a building program too. A little bit smaller than what we're doing, but $5,000 to them was huge. Anybody remember we got a gift of $20,000 from Lompoc Foursquare in the middle of our building program? That was significant. $5,000 to Life Church was huge for them in what God is doing. And even as we're processing through and we're making this leap and this change, there's ways that we're trying to make sure that with the equipment that we're not going to be taking with us, that we can be generous with other churches so we can bless the body of Christ because we're all on the same team. We're not in competition with any other church. We're all about what God wants to do collectively through all the churches of our city. So God's called us to be missional, generous, and then there's two more. The third element of our Antioch church DNA is incarnational. And you think, well, that's a big word. What does that even mean? When Jesus became human, we call that the incarnation. God becoming human, taking on human flesh so that he could be with us. He could be one of us so that he could be present with us. So the Antioch Church 2,000 years ago, it's the first time in, in human history that someone was called a Christian because they somehow embodied Jesus enough that someone gave them a label that identified them with him. That's pretty amazing. Now, in our, in our culture, sometimes Christian can be almost derogatory. Oh, you're one of them, right? You're a Christian. And really what it should be is, oh, you're a Christian, and there's something different about you. In fact, there's some, something almost, almost weird about you. Not weird in a bad way, but weird in a good way. Because sometimes we're weird in a weird way, and that's bad. It is. And we give, we give the bad name to what it means to be a Christian. But there's something so different. I, I can't get my, my, my brain around why you think differently and you act differently than everybody else around you. And it's strange. It's almost weird. But I, I want to know more about that. See, that's what was going on, and that, that's really incarnational. That means I'm embodying enough of who Jesus is in my life that it makes people curious. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he walked the planet, hung out the majority of the time that he hung out with, he hung out with his disciples, but he spent time with sinners because they were curious about this guy who loved them, but yet at the same time came to die and to rise from the dead to provide forgiveness for their sin. They were intrigued by him. They should, people should be intrigued by us. Why? Because we are present with them. Now, here's the, here's the understanding. 
Mission is about being sent. Incarnation is about being present. And sometimes the mission part's almost easier to get. Oh, I'm sent. In fact, especially if I'm sent to go to Haiti, I'm sent to go to Peru, I'm sent to go to Brazil, but I'm coming back home. That's what we like, right? I am sent for two weeks, but that's it. I'm sent for a month. That's it. I might even branch out maybe three months, but then I get to come back home. But what incarnation means is that I am present. Listen to what John wrote of Jesus in John 1.14. In NIV, which is what we normally use in the International Version, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, in the message, which is, is a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, he says it this way. He says, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's a much more vivid picture of what Jesus did. He moved into the neighborhood. So what does it mean to be incarnational? It means you live in your neighborhood. You don't just happen to abide at the address that you have, that you receive mail at, or that you've been given a key to, or that your car fits into the garage at. It's the place that God has put you so that you are present. That means that the people around you, in your neighborhood, in the apartment above you, that make all the noise that irritates you, or the neighbor who walks their dog and pees on your grass, and all those, those are the people that God has called you to be present with. Anybody have those kind of people in your neighborhood? You just don't want to admit it? Okay. But that's who God's called us to be with, to be present. It's the coworker that God's placed you and given you relationship with. It's the person you sit next to in class at school. It's the family member that you've known for years that doesn't know Jesus. You are the embodiment of who Jesus is to them. That's what we're called to be. That's what it means to be incarnational. And that's why it's so important for you and I to embrace this identity because if people want to know who Jesus is, they're going to look at you. Now, I know you think, oh man, thanks for the guilt and the the pressure. Now I have, no. If you are genuinely following Jesus and allowing him to transform your life and to change you, then what will be reflected in your life is who he is. That's what it truly means. And if you and I, God has called us to move into the neighborhood to be present with people. So in your neighborhood, you are there for one primary reason, to live out what it means to follow Jesus so that other people around you can feel his impact, can feel his touch. You are the flesh and blood of who Jesus is in our city. And then there's a a fourth element of this DNA that God is infusing into us, and that is the DNA of being multicultural. Now, I know that statement can be kind of, it's got some, some kind of... Uh, cultural tags to it that can cause confusion, but multicultural means of many cultures. And the church overall, when it was birthed 2,000 years ago, was it monocultural? But for the most part, our churches, not just New Hope, but the church in general becomes very monocultural, which there's always a dominant culture in every church. Not true of all of them, but when the church started 2,000 years ago, when they were all gathered in Jerusalem and, and the Holy Spirit came and the first church started, it says there were people from all these different cultures. In fact, we know that because when the Holy Spirit came and people started to speak in tongues, it said people heard the praises of God in their own language. So all these people who had a different uh, cultural background, different languages, all were united to birth the first church. And we know that throughout what God wants his church to be is this combination of all the nations together, working in harmony together. In fact, it's laced throughout Scripture. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus actually says, this is what's crazy, he, he lets you and I be a part of the timeline of when he returns. When he says, in this gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, is preached to all nations, he says, then the end comes. That's when I return. 
Can you just think about that for a minute? Is that kind of crazy? The God of the universe says to human beings, I'm going to let you have a, a, a piece of this time frame of when I return. And it all comes down to every nation being reached. And what is every nation in, in, the, in the scriptures? It's every ethnic group, language group, subculture of the general culture. It's not just geographic countries. And in the world today, there's thousands of those nations. And if you read Matthew 28, which we call the Great Commission, verse 19, Jesus says, therefore, go make disciples of people that look like you. No, all nations. And then in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, the same thing. Standing in the throne room of heaven, John gets this picture that God gives him about what it's going to look like in eternity. And it says, standing before the throne were people from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping God. It's throughout Scripture. What does that mean for you and I? That means that God's desire is to reach all people groups. And that means we have to think about for ourselves, how do we do that? Well, we're sending teams to Haiti and Peru and Brazil and wherever else God opens up. But at the same time, understanding even within our own city, we, we are predominantly a white city. We are Caucasian. That is the majority population in Simi Valley and Moore Park area. But we have a growing, increasing Latino population. That's why we've partnered. There's a Hispanic church that meets in our building, which is wonderful. But what about other cultures in a city? What about Pakistani? What about Indian? What about Chinese? There are little pockets throughout our city that have different ethnic groups that have now come to us. They've come to the United States. They're, they're called immigrants, or we call them undocumented in some cases, and we want them out. But God has brought them to us where if maybe we couldn't reach them because of the barriers of their government in the country there, and they've come here, and there are no restrictions. It's a great opportunity. But on the bigger, bigger kind of picture, my, my desire and my prayer for our church someday is that we will adopt an unreached people group. Right now, there's estimates as low as 3,000, as high as 7,000 people groups in the world today that have yet to have the understandable, tangible gospel translated into their culture. They don't even know who Jesus is, let alone what in the world the Bible is. They don't have any of that yet. It hasn't penetrated them yet. But the moment that that happens, when those three to 7,000 get reached, that's when Jesus comes back. And I'm telling you, the highlight of my eternity will be for if you and I someday can stand before the throne of Jesus in eternity, we're in heaven with him, and we can look across the throne room, and there's this little group of people, this little ethnic group, that because we decided to pray and give and go, they're standing in the throne room of heaven because they heard the gospel for the first time. Would that be amazing? Am I the only one that thinks that's amazing? I want you just to think about that. That's not a temporary impact. That's eternal impact. You have changed somebody's destiny forever because we made a commitment to sacrificially pray and give and go. And some maybe even risk our lives to go into a context where it's illegal to be a Christian. It, you put your life on the line to even share any, with anybody about who Jesus is. That's, that's increasing in our world, by the way. More and more and more persecution against church. More and more nations that are, it's becoming illegal to become a Christian. That means more and more courage is required by the church to reach every nation. So Jesus has called us to be multicultural. That means finding ways to reach all people groups. So, some specific things about what this means for us, and then I'll answer, there's some questions I want to answer that are in your, um, in your handout. So, who are we? What is our mission? How do you articulate that? This, let me read something that you, if you've gone through um, uh, 
you've gone through a line, you've heard this before, but I want to reiterate it. So what does this mean for us? So Antioch's church mission is this. We exist to join God in the reconciliation of all things back to him through Jesus by making disciples like Jesus so that people from all nations worship Jesus. So in the simplest format, it is with Jesus, which is reconciliation, like Jesus, which is discipleship, and glorify Jesus, which is worship. Those three things comprise who we're supposed to be. Reconciliation. The whole reason human history is unfolding, the whole reason that you and I are here, is God is patiently reconciling people back to him through Jesus. And what does reconciliation ultimately look, look like? It looks like this thing called discipleship. When you and I, when we are reconciled and we're right with God, we become more and more and more like Jesus. And then the ultimate outcome of reconciliation and discipleship is this thing called worship. Now, I know when I say that, we always think, okay, worship. That means band on the stage, 20 minutes of worship, songs, that's worship. That is one fraction of worship. Worship is our entire life. Everything to do, the way I parent my kids, the way I love my spouse, the way I spend my money, the way I think, the way I work my job, the way I do anything. That's all worship and devotion to God. That's ultimately what this is about, is that ultimately, the reason there's this thing called missions is because the world doesn't worship God. The, wor- the world worships what? Itself. And that's the ultimate outcome. That's why John describes in Revelation 7 this, this worship, that it's all about Jesus, our devotion to him, which is where we find our meaning and we find our fulfillment. So let me answer some questions that I know that as we've walked through this journey and processed through things, that these are the kind of the common questions that come up about a name change from New Hope to Antioch. So I'm just going to highlight three of them because I think these are the major, major ones, and I'll read what's there. So the first question, won't the name Antioch be confusing for people outside the church? So let me read response to that. Though churches are identified by their name, they are known by their reputation. A simple internet search of churches reveals all kinds of strange names. Mars Hill, Ebenezer Baptist Church, Cornerstone, and so on. When a new identity is established in the community, the name of the church becomes associated with its reputation. Most people don't attend a church based on the name, but do so through relationship and reputation. The name Antioch has more to do with reminding us of our identity than communicating to others. Churches are known more by their people than by their name. This, if you, you know this is true. So n- normally it's like, if someone, like, I really need to go to church. Let me go on the internet and check out what the cool names are. I'm going to go to that church because of the name. That doesn't happen. People will choose to go to a church because of the reputation. Their reputation, what they represent. And then the name becomes synonymous with the reputation. So the name becomes good or bad according to the reputation. And that's why, like, for example, Mars Hill, obviously, some of you don't know, there's a couple different Mars Hill. Mars Hill is a reference to uh, a place in Acts, when, or actually when in Athens, where Paul was addressing some of the Athenians. And, and so it's kind of this great kind of, like, evangelistic event. So churches were called Mars Hill. If you don't know the Bible, you don't know Mars Hill. That sounds strange. It sounds like a different planet. It sounds like a cult, doesn't it? Ebenezer Baptist Church. That's Martin Luther King Jr.'s church. That's a strange name. Ebenezer? What does that even mean, right? It's a reference from the Old Testament. But most people don't like that. Even in our own context, for example, cornerstone. Cornerstone's a construction term based on the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation of all things. But in our city, one of the things, and I'm going to toot their horn, I think Cornerstone's a great church. They've gone through a lot of transition. They're not the church known as Francis Chan's church anymore by design. Um, 
I know some of you might even have background at Cornerstone, but outside the church culture in Simi Valley, do you know what kind of reputations Cornerstone has? A really good one. See, when you come from the outside in, like I did two years ago, and you start to listen to the city, the foster care system, the school system, when you bring up Cornerstone, people go, oh yeah, they, they help us out a lot. You know, they've really supported their people really do this and they do that. And I love that reputation. I think that Cornerstone hits it out of the park as far as impacting our city. Cornerstone's the kind of church that if Cornerstone disappeared tomorrow, tomorrow, Simi Valley would be hurting. It would. That should be true of every church in our city. That should be true of Antioch Church. That it's the reputation that people understand, not the name. But when you and I give ourselves a name, or God gives us a name, it is more of a reminder of who we are than a statement that we're going to make to somebody else. Because people care little about the name. They care more about the reputation. So the second question is, won't people have a difficult time finding us if we have a new location and a new name at the same time? Response to that, since the church consists of people, those who are unchurched or dechurched in our community most often find their way into a church through relationship. Whether we are New Hope on Shasta Way or Antioch on Runway Street, People define who we are, and people also determine where we are. In other words, wherever we gather, we're the church. The building is irrelevant. The location is irrelevant. And that's why if people want to find Antioch Church, guess what the, how they do that? They find it through us. Yeah, we'll have a physical building, and there'll be a sign, and there'll be a website, and they can, all that. But how do people find their way into church? People just don't, if they don't, if they're not, they don't know Jesus and they're not connected, they just don't do an internet search or open the phone book and say, okay, what church am I going to? They don't do that. They used to do that, but culturally we don't do that anymore. They come, what, through invitation, through reputation. So I'm not so concerned like, oh, a new name, new location, nobody's going to know and we need to put formerly known as Sunrise, formerly known as New Hope. No, we don't. We need to be Antioch, who God is calling us to be. Then there's a, a third question that hopefully this will bring some clarity. And that's this. Isn't this just Pastor John leaving his mark or doing his thing like our previous pastors? Okay, we had Ken Craft who started the church, Sunrise, and then going through transition, difficulty, the name kind of hung on, and then James Craft came in, changed everything, New Hope. And now Pastor John comes in, it's not not Sunrise, not who, but it's Antioch. Then what's after that, right? What other strange name can we come up with? Let me read the response and then explain a little bit. As we embrace our new identity, we are living in the reality that Jesus is the Lord of the church, not John Amstutz. The name Antioch is not patterned after another leader or church other than the New Testament example of one of the most influential churches recorded in the Bible. Our goal is to be a unique expression in our culture of what the the church at Antioch was in its culture. One of the things you've heard me say over the last two years is Jesus is the Lord of the church. I am not. Ken wasn't. James wasn't. Stan wasn't. Dan wasn't. Joe wasn't. None of them were. Even if we might have thought we were, that's the mistake of pastoring. You think that you're in charge and you're really not. Jesus is the Lord of the church. Therefore, for this time and this season, God is giving us an identifier to say this is who you're supposed to be. And that's why we embrace that. And that hopefully, if, if, if I have only made everything that we are about who I think we are and what I think we're supposed to be, and it's all been about me, then I, as a pastor, have failed miserably. Because my goal in the last two years, and will always be, is not get you to be drawn to me. It's to get you to know Jesus. Because long after I'm gone, your relationship with Jesus will matter more than anything. Maybe someday you might not even like me. I'm okay with that, as long as you're in love with Jesus. 
That's all that matters because I won't get you to heaven. He will. I can't change your life. He can. And he's the one, and that's why we have, in a sense, pardon the expression, maybe OD'd on Jesus the last two years. You've heard a lot about Jesus through the Gospels and what he's doing because it really is ultimately about him. So some kind of specific logistic things, and then we'll move towards the vote here at the end. But So you understand that the timing of this. As we make the transition from Shasta to runway, that's when we will officially make the name change. So May 31st will be our last Sunday as New Hope. June 7th will be our first Sunday as Antioch Church. That's the time frame that we're working with, so you know. So as you know, if you came in here today, if you're really astute, you notice that there's nothing New Hope left in here. There's no banners, nothing, because we're making this transition. We're still going to identify to the community as New Hope for the next six or seven weeks or so, but then we'll make the shift uh, to Antioch. Something I think is really important, in fact, we processed through this with some of our leaders, that I think would be really helpful in our mindset, okay? Because I know, depending on how long you've been a part of the church, some of you go back to, like, founding the church. You're like, you know all the history, all the ups and the downs and everything. And so you carry with you this sense of history good or bad, either I want to get away from it or I want to restore the glory years. It's one of those two things in my conversations with people. But I think in order for us to embrace not just the name, but the new identity and what we've talked about, this concept of God recreating us, I think there needs to be a shift in our mindset of how we see ourselves. And one of the things that that I I mentioned with some of our leaders that I think is helpful, and I know it's helpful to me, is that when we make this shift in name and location and identity, is that we see ourselves not as a carryover from the past that just happens to be changing addresses, but actually viewing ourselves like a new church plant with 350 people. I, I want you to grasp that, that we are a brand new church that doesn't say, hey, we used to do it this way. We don't have a used to anymore because we're brand new. And if we can see it that way, so you understand. Now, some of you are like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen when we get to the new building? It's going to be like totally different, like Pastor John's going to wear a suit, and he's gonna, we're going to do strange things like that, right? We're still going to be who we are, but the reality is in our mind we have to shift from, and what's beautiful about going to a new building is there's not looking at a certain part of our building and say, hey, you know, when we were doing this, we used to do it this way. There'll be no more used tos. It'll only be brand new for the first time what God's calling us to be. The way that we are church, the way that even we inhabit that building, the way that we function will be brand new. But if you can grasp that reality, it makes it a lot easier to make the transition instead of trying to hang on to something that you think that you're supposed to carry over with you. And, and in preparation for, for this change, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. In fact, there was information in your bulletin. There was an insert that said consecrate at the top of that. When we hit May, we have five Sundays left. The five Sundays in May, we're going to be walking through a series called Consecrate. And in Joshua, the first eight chapters, you, you see that, that Israel, as it was following God out of the wilderness into the promised land, again, it's unique to Israel, but there's some similarities that we can draw from in their history that help us to consecrate, which is to set ourselves apart, to prepare for what God wants to do in our present, in our future. And so what I'm calling us to do in the month of May is to fast. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Now, if you really feel like God's saying you need to fast the whole month and you want to fast 31 days, you better know what you're getting into, first off. And that should only be something that you feel like God's calling you to do. I'm not calling you to fast food for, not eat fast food, fast from food. So you're like, yes, in and out McDonald's, taco. No, I'm not saying that. But to fast from food for 31 days. But what I am saying is fast from either food. Now, some of you have, you have dietary restrictions. You can't do that. Don't do that. 
but find something else that's valuable to you, something that you know, if I can give up for this season. So what fasting is, is I choose to give this up here so that it makes time and space for God over here. What am I giving up that's maybe drawing my attention that I need to lay down so that I can give God my full attention? So it might be food, it might be television, it might be electronics, it might be whatever it is that you know that dominates your time, that you say, okay, I'm going to give that up for a period of time. And then commit to that for 31 days. And then during that, as we walk through each Sunday, we'll be highlighting different parts of who we are in our lives that God's calling us to consecrate as we prepare. Israel had to consecrate themselves in a preparation for some incredible things that God wanted to do. He needed their full attention. And that month of May is our preparation season of embracing what God is going to be doing as we move forward. We have to be ready for what God wants to do with us. And because of that, that means setting ourselves aside, being ready for what he's going to do. So that'll come up in the month of May. So one final thing I want to do before we will do the vote, and I'll talk about logistics of that, is I was, uh, as I was thinking through this day and and as we process through um, what this would represent, uh, about probably about 15 months ago now, 14, 15 months ago, I was at the, the Oaks uh, Conference Center, which is where we've had our men's retreat before. Some of the guys know it. And I had just taken a day, or actually a night and a day away, just to go away, no agenda, just to sit and be with Jesus. And I try to do that just because being in the normal rhythm of life, even my own devotions can be distracting. So it's like, okay, I just needed to give Jesus my attention. So I was there, and, and I went um, early in the morning. I went up to the cross that's there, and it was beautiful. There was nobody there. There was no retreat schedule. There was, like, silence. It was beautiful. And I sat at the cross just kind of looking. It was a beautiful day. And as I was sitting there, the Lord started to speak to me. And, and he gave me something I'm going to read to you in a moment. And when he gave it to me, after I kind of got back to where my journal was, I started writing it down in my journal so I didn't forget it. And I remember as I wrote it down, I said, Lord, I know that you've given this to our church but I don't know when it's supposed to happen. It's not supposed to happen the following Sunday. But I know there's going to be a time and a place where you're going to say, now's the time. A couple weeks ago when I was preparing, God said, now's the time. You need to read this. People need to hear this. So if you would, this is what, what the Lord gave me for our church. As I was seat, sitting and reflecting at the cross, at the oaks, I, a hawk rising from the ground caught my eye. It was probably 100 feet or so from the ground when I first saw it. As I watched the hawk, something dawned on me. It was flying and rising without flapping its wings. The hawk was soaring effortlessly as it gained more and more altitude. Within a matter of a minute or two, the hawk had climbed from just off the ground to nearly 1,500 feet above the mountain range nearby. It was amazing to see the hawk simply rely on the power of the air moving around it to cause it to rise without any strain or difficulty. After the hawk flew on, I saw a crow as well rising up from the ground. It was a much smaller bird with a shorter wingspan. The crow had moments when it was soaring as its wings remained still, but those brief moments were followed by long periods of fierce flapping in order to stay airborne and increase altitude. The crow was working hard to do what the hawk had just done so easily just a moment before. As I continued to watch the determined yet inadequate crow, it was evident that it was flapping more than soaring and never did reach the height of the hawk. The hawk chose to use the power of the wind to rise while the crow tried to use its own power to rise. My life with Jesus and our efforts as a church have looked more like flapping than soaring. Instead of relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to lift us up, we have relied on our power to cause us to rise. My journey, our journey, has have been characterized by flapping instead of soaring. 
This has led to lots of work, stress, fear, pride, and failure. Our past has been about flapping, but God is calling us to a future of soaring. On the outside, soaring seems so easy. The hawk really didn't have to do much except occasionally make a minor adjustment in the angle of its wings to continue to allow the wind to lift it. At times, it looked motionless as it continued to rise. What is hidden behind the simplicity and apparent ease of soaring is something far more difficult and something elusive. The most important factor in the process of soaring is trust. A hawk trusts the presence and the power of the wind to bring elevation. Its wings have to be spread as wide as possible to maximize the amount of lift from the wind. The hawk has, to, has a deeply rooted hope and trust in the wind that allows it to reach heights not attainable by flapping under its own power. I'm sure the first attempt at soaring by a hawk comes with some apprehension and fear. Will the wind catch me or lift me as I spread my wings? Will I continue my rapid descent resulting in a painful impact with the ground? Sunrise New Hope has been built on the personalities and valiant efforts of its previous leaders. It has seen both heights and depths surrounded by strenuous seasons of flapping. We have trusted in our work ethic, our creativity, our strength, our pride, and our history to bring us to an elevation only achieved through soaring on the wind of God's Spirit. We have put our trust in people, programs, and performances. It's time to put our hope and trust in Jesus through His Spirit in our lives and church. It's time to stop striving, time to stop straining, time to stop flapping, and time to start follow, or stop following the flawed flight of the crow. It's time to start surrendering. It's time to start responding. It's time to embrace the effective flight of the hawk. It's time to start soaring. Isaiah prophesied this to God's people, knowing their future included difficulties and captivity. Their own doing was, would cause them to lose everything, but their trust in the Lord would renew them. So listen to Isaiah 40, verses 27 to 31. He writes, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fail. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And then finally, when we choose by faith to soar instead of flap, we will see God exchange or replace our strength with His. We will see progress, effectiveness, and new heights without growing weary and tired in our strength because it is being accomplished by God's. That's for us. Now hear me, that's not to somehow downplay anything of our history of what God has done. God used this church significantly in our city in the last two decades. Some of you have come to know Jesus through this church. You didn't know who he was, but through Sunrise New Hope, you've come to know Jesus. This church started a, a food pantry years ago when there was no food pantry in Simi Valley. Now there's an abundance of food in our city. God has done amazing things, but at the same time, you, if you've been a part of our church, you know that we've struggled with great failures, great times of struggle. And what God is saying is no longer are we going to rely on the strength of a personality, no longer are we going to try to create a great program, no longer are we going to try to rest on our pride from the past. It's time to start soaring on the power of God's Spirit. And the shift is this. God is already at work, and you know what He calls you and I to do? to respond to his work. 
instead of coming up with a great plan and saying, hey, Jesus, come bless what we're doing already. He's not in, interested in blessing anything we're doing. He's already blessing what he's doing. And he's saying, if you will realize my spirit's at work, you will soar. You will go to heights that you never could have imagined. But it won't be because you're so smart or you're so gifted. It's simply that you had faith and trust in me that I could accomplish my purpose through you. That's what our future looks like. That's why I'm excited. That's why I can't wait to continue moving forward because God has not ever at one moment or another and never will in the future ever leave us as a family. He will never leave us. He'll never leave us as individuals. God still has us here. Why? Because he loves our city and he loves the world and he loves us. And he's not finished with what he wants to do with us. So with all that fire hose of information you just had and just got, would you go ahead and grab the, the ballot that you will find in the, in the handout that I gave you? In fact, the ushers are going to be coming down the rows here in just a moment with pens if you, if you need a pen. But let me explain what, what we're going to do with the ballot in the next few moments. Ushers, you can go ahead and distribute those pens if you want. So on that ballot, you see on the top, this is, this is our, our, our name change. This is a part of our Foursquare protocol um, that you have to approve by two-thirds majority, th- this name change. So on the top, it says member, non-member. Let me explain what that means. So if you historically have been a part of, of our church, or this church, and at one time or another you went through a membership class and you signed some kind of a document, you're a member. Now in our recent history, uh, we don't have official membership right now. We have uh, really more based on our practical function in a church. In other words, you qualify. If you've never gone through, uh, if you haven't gone through a line yet, that's part of our process. But, but if, if you can say yes to these three things, then you can say, yes, I'm a member. If, if not, that's okay. Non-members, we still want to know everybody's opinion. We want everyone to vote on this. But if you faithfully attend and participate in what's going on in the church, if you faithfully and consistently give financially to the church, and you faithfully and consistently serve, then you'd say, okay, I got all three. I'm a member then you can say member. If not, two out of three is really good, but it doesn't qualify. So no one's looking over your shoulder, so just check one of those boxes. And then the the second set of boxes down below. First one, in fact, some of you might have already done it. First one is, yes, I agree with the leadership and where God is leading us that we are supposed to change our name from, from New Hope Christian Fellowship to Antioch Church. Or the second one, which is, no, I don't believe we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to remain New Hope. Those are your two options. Got it? Can we do it? All right, let me pray real quick, and then you can vote, all right? Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the work of your spirit. Thank you for what you're doing in us. And as we move forward, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to move forward with one heart for what you're calling us to become and the identifier that you're giving to us, Lord, in Antioch Church. In Jesus' name, amen. So check those boxes, fold your, your ballot in half, and then the ushers are going to be passing, again, just like we do our offering, at, pass the baskets right now down the rows, and just go ahead and drop your ballot in there, and then the ushers will collect that once it gets to the other side of the room. So what I would like you to do is once you have put your ballot in the basket there, would you go ahead and stand, and I'm going to conclude our time in prayer today. as quiet as it's been in here all morning, hasn't it? All right, let's go ahead and pray as we conclude today. In fact, would you go ahead and grab the hand of the person next to you, even if you have to kind of extend across the aisles, um, just as a point of in unity as we're embracing what God's saying to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord of the church. You are the Lord of our lives. You are at work today, and we thank you for that. And Lord, we want to embrace 
the future that you're giving us. We want to be new in the way that you're creating us so that, Lord, we, we think differently, we act differently. doesn't mean that somehow we're perfect, but, Lord, that there's a new way of understanding you, a new way of our life, and we want that. We want that as individuals. We want that as a church family. And so, Lord, as we walk through this next very important this season of change, that you would allow us to not sit back passively and see these things happen in front of us and not participate. But Lord, help us to step in. Lord, that I know that now is the time for all of us to jump in with both feet. Not to sit back and to resist or, Lord, even to, to question. But Lord, to really listen, not to Pastor John, not to me, but to listen to you. What is your Spirit saying to us so that, Lord, our conviction comes from what you were doing in our hearts as we embrace our future together. Lord, help us to live this out. So, Lord, that not only are we new, but our city is different and the world is different and eternity is impacted. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.